Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 63 of an Inside View podcast. We're on the ball, team building. Hard to believe it is episode 63. The weeks and the episodes just seem to be flying. Big shout out to GRG Sports and Vintry Harbour Asset Management for the continued support. We really appreciate it, guys. This week, we're delighted to be joined by head performance analyst at Munster Rugby, George Murray. The Wicklow man was development officer with Leinster Rugby prior to joining Munster in 2002. At the time, he joined the province as a video analyst, which was a newly created position. Murray is a two-time AIL winner and has coached a number of AIL sides throughout the province. What is it like when the Heineken Cup on two occasions? What does it look like work with Munster on a daily basis? What does his job entail? How does he deal with players? What's it like being in a high-pressure environment? There's no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi George, firstly, thanks for taking time out to come on the Inside View podcast. How are you keeping? I'm great, Jamie. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, pleasure to talk to you. I'm, I'm keeping very well. Um, just coming back off after probably five or six week break, which is the longest break we've ever had from the game. Um, so quite quite mentally refreshed. Um, glad to step away from rugby for a little while, but uh, very much happy to be back into it again now. Good, good. Are you going into your 19th or 20th season at Munster? Yeah, 20th season. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it seems like a long time, but, you know, I was thinking about it the other day when, you you know, when, when somebody mentions to me, it actually just doesn't feel that long really at all, you know. In this game, things change so quickly. Everything changes fast. Yeah, you know, if you're excited about the game, you're excited about performance and you're excited about Monster, you know, every season just flies into another one. I suppose every season, you're you know, you're dealing with new new players and perhaps new management every couple of seasons so keeps that appetite a bit wet doesn't it yeah new players new coaches um you know i mean that's always that was always part of it you've got to adapt to, to who's coming in you've got to you know the most important thing is to try and prove yourself and, and what you're doing as a as a department what you're doing as a as an individual so you know I, I loved stepping away from the game for a couple of weeks and then just reflecting on what you've done the last year um, but then as soon as you get back into it, it's kind of, you know, you're, you're on your week or two on holidays and you're actually going, all right, I'm getting excited and getting giddy again about starting fresh on something else, running, you know, maybe a new project or something that you want to implement past the players and coaches. Um, that's what keeps you motivated. You're definitely one of the, the earlier guys to video analysis. Like I found it very interesting how you ended up in, in that role. Um, before we delve into that, I'd like to get an insight how you, you know, how you kind of dealt with lockdown, you know, with the players and kind of kept the players in, in tune. Yeah, I suppose, geez, it seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? I mean, that's probably, this probably been the longest year I've ever, well, certainly feels like the longest year I've ever been involved in, in, in professional sport. Um, pretty much like everybody you've spoken to or I've spoken to or you've heard, it, it was all about adapting very quickly. Um trying to see what was the most important thing. Um, you know, initially when lockdown hit, you're kind of going, okay, we may be back in a month. We may be back in two months. And that, that picture kept on changing. So 
you know, initially we went into the gym, we just pushed as many bits of equipment out to players, get the programs, you know, so they can start training themselves. So we kind of let them adapt to that, first of all, just athletically, how could they keep themselves in, in a physical shape? Because we didn't know when we were going to restart again. Um, and we left all the rugby stuff and the kind of contacts, contacting them mentally or contacting them through rugby until we kind of really knew when we were going to start up again. So we, we kind of treated it like a mini preseason in a way where we, we let them physically get themselves right, mentally, personally, and on a mental level, get themselves right to dealing with the whole thing um, before we started bombarding with rugby. That was the key to us. So we sat down as a coaching group and as an athletic performance group and really just said, right, how are we going to, how are we going to manage this? And everybody, everybody had an idea and everybody in every sport and every organization had their own idea. So, uh, you know, f- there wasn't any rights or wrong here because we were all learning for the first time what to do with this situation. So, And you were saying there that, you know, you're starting off for the, the 20 season. So pre-season is kicking off now or has kicked off already. Um, by the time this podcast will go out, you know, you, you always hear the, the bad stories at pre-seasons, grueling and all that. But would you have seen a change over, we say, the last 20 years that players are, are, are in better shape now coming into pre-season than there would have been, we say, 20 years ago? Oh, without doubt, Jamie. Um, you know, I think the biggest part of taking a break at the end of the pre-season is mentally just to switch off. Um, players by nature will, you know, they'll want to keep themselves relatively fit and the demands of coming into pre-season have, have grown exponentially over the last number of years. And, you know, you're almost straight into some sort of testing. Um, in fact, lots of different types of testing. Um, so, you know, the, the old way of taking four weeks off and coming in on day one, starting fresh is, is gone. You know, it's literally two weeks mentally flush out, take a break, go to the sun. But then, you know, then it's starting to build up that little base level and capacity to deal with the first week of pre-season. Jeez, yeah, I suppose getting that mental switch off is probably the most important thing for players because especially if they're trying to break into the squad, they probably don't want to, but it's probably the best thing in the long run that they do get that, you know, that mental switch off. Yeah, like the mental switch off is key because you want to be um, reinvigorated coming into it. Um, you know, you want to come in fresh with a fresh mindset and kind of bin the negative, um, even been, you know, just some of the thoughts that you had at the end of the last season, just to be able to start fresh. Um, you know, one, one of the biggest challenges, and you see this with guys who come in, say, from an academy perspective, they usually start a week or two earlier than the senior side that, so they can build that base to deal with because preseason's tough. It's meant to be tough. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to get yourselves better physically, uh, better, you know, athletically prepared than any other team in the country or in, in the league. So, you've got to find that threshold. You've got to find those challenges. So, you know, you see a lot of people break down during preseason, less so in the modern player because they're, you know, they're building that base prior to that week one. But, you know, you're going hard for two or three weeks. And, and if you haven't built up that base and sometimes you get club, club level guys who come in on trials, et cetera, and, you know, you've got to manage them as well. You've got to manage that. You don't give them the full load that a, a five or six year veteran um, professional player has to take on you, you know you got to manage that expectation a little bit as well because they want to do everything but you know their bodies and um, training age aren't aren't equipped to, to manage that load uh, you, like when you say you know guys would, would break down is that mentally and physically like would they would they just start getting extremely emotional or, or like how, 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 how have you seen players react over the years 
yeah, it's different for everybody. Um, you know, sometimes people will mentally break down because they physically break down. So, you know, where their expectations may have been, I'm going to absolutely rock up and kill this preseason. And you get a little niggle or you're, you know, you're not quite competing where you wanted to compete with. And that can mentally damage your your focus. Um, so you're constantly having to, I suppose, players will set goals and they'll set targets and they'll sit down with performance coaches and, and say, look, um, this is what I managed from a load point of view last season, I want to push that another 20, 30% this preseason. I've, I've got myself equipped and ready to deal with that and let's go for it. Um, but, you know, there's always, there's always um, speed bumps along the way in preseason um, and, and that's the nature of it. So, you know, players have to manage a lot of that themselves. Um, you know, they manage their goals, they manage their expectations. Performance staff are there to push you and, you know, I'm certainly not athletic performance staff so I can't speak for them but, you know, I know the type of guys we have here. We'll, we'll sit down with those guys individually. They'll even meet, meet them after a long day and, and, and see where they're at and see how they're feeling. Um, and that personal relationship will, uh, you know, just, just grows the whole team, grows the, the culture. You know, we, um, last season during the, uh, the Rainbow Cup, there was new rules, trials. Is the feeling around at the moment, are they going to be, is there any place for those rules in the game going forward? Do you think they'll be in place? Yeah, we're waiting for some clarity on a few things, but um, certain, certainly the, the, the 50-22 and things like that are going to be implemented. Um, you know, um, going, going back on those laws from last year, you know, there was some mixed reviews on some of them. Um, you, you know, there's some, some things you, I wouldn't have liked with it, and there's some things you do like. You know, the goal line dropout is a good thing. Um, you know, it just brings an added thought process to the whole game of what you're going to do with it. Um, also, how you how you're going to attack in the, in you know the goal the goal line, how you're going to not be held up, how you're going to make sure you score a try. There's there's added things in there which make you think, which is always good for everybody to stimulate the game. Um, you know the red cards. You know I didn't think that was a particularly great rule. I mean, um, there's mixed views on it. You know, you know you get it. You get a call where you're it's a harsh call, or you know in in, in retrospect, and you look look back at it, it's probably a harsh call, and then you you have somebody off the pitch for seventy minutes, but you know, to use a soccer cliche over the season, those things balance out. Um, and I think if 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 um, if a if a nasty act is done on the pitch, it needs to be dealt with. And uh, you know, sometimes you could get a couple of yellow cards for small infringements in a game, and you could get a very nasty red card, but that guy's back on the pitch and serve less time from a couple of yellow cards. So, yeah, that's the that's probably one thing. You know, we didn't see a lot of it, but um, I'm not too sure where it will sink into the game, to be honest, which we want to take away foul plays. So, um, yeah, so look, I think the, the people the people that are thinking about where the game is going to go, you're getting input from other people. Um, so we got to trust their judgment on these things. Norman's analyst, um, I suppose just, just for the, you know, normal person that won't be involved, they would say in the, you know, the rugby sphere, can you kind of just break it down exactly what your role is and how that would differ, we say, from the athletic, athletic side of things? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, the performance analyst role is quite uh, wide-ranging. Um, somebody said it to me before, you've, uh, you know, what does a performance analyst do? And I heard, I heard Mike Hughes, who was the English analyst, talking about it on the podcast recently. He said, like, it's almost you come into a team room and you're expected to know how to work the kettle and the toaster and, you know, anything that involves electricity and power and IT or, or a plug, <laughs> you're the guy to go to. If it's a printer, if it's a networking issue, um, 
So, you know, over the years, you actually just have to adapt and learn all these little skill sets because where we are now in the game, um, you know, from a data point of view, from uh, networking and getting feeds to the, uh, you know, feeds to the coaches on the sideline, you've got to be pretty well-rounded in your skill set. Um, that probably doesn't answer your question about what, is, what does a performance analyst do and the difference between athletic performance. Athletic performance is, is strength and conditioning. It's a very different department of ours, although we, we cross over in many areas um, because fundamentally what we're trying to do is service the player and the team. Um, so we've got, to, we've got to understand the S&C side of things, the GPS and all that, and, and make sure that their data and their feedback talks to the actual on-field performance data that we produce. Um, what, what my role and what, what our department's role is to is multifaceted. It's it's to provide video and uh, video feedback um, to equip all the coaches and players with the best prep um, detail that they have available to or that we can make available to them. Um, it's to it's to scout. It's to report on opposition. It's to record training from multiple angles and give and, and make sure that resources are available to everybody in the organization. But I suppose if I were to bring it back to one simple phrase that I always use, it's. We're there to maximize the, the win potential of our team. And um, if you can kind of narrow your focus back down to that, 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 that punchline of creating the win potential, well, that means everything. You know, so if it's the culture in the building, if it's meeting people off-site to have a cup of tea with them and, and chat about the game and help them in their own performance in line with what the coach's philosophy is, if that helps increase, if it's to get the weather accurate for the weekend, seven days' time, how's the wind going to be blowing in the southwest of France? You know, all these small little things added together for me may give, may give the tiniest little margin, but that tiniest little margin is increasing the wind potential of your team. And I just find it fascinating how you, you, um, you know, your rugby development officer initially with, with Linster and just a role came up with Munster and it just evolved from there. Do you want to just kind of give a brief background? Because it, it is fascinating, to be honest. Yeah, it's a funny one, actually. Um, I could have very much not have been here, but uh, I suppose call it faith or, or uh, a bit of luck. Um, I was playing with Greystones and um, I, was out, I was out of school. I was in Dundrum College doing a sports um, uh, management pro- uh, diploma. And I actually tore my ACL playing under 20s or a senior actually with Greystones and uh, spent a bit of time rehabbing that season um, and kind of got into coaching, kind of got into uh, getting involved, working with the with, with, with uh, St. Gerard's and Bray and Prez and Greystones underage teams and kind of got a little bit of a grow for um, coaching. Um, and Ken Ging with Greystones and Alan Gaffney had spent a lot of time down there, had had asked me to come in and do a little bit of help with the development um, program in Leinster, the underage program. And, um, so I'd done that, kind of got involved with that. And, you know, the course allowed me to do a month's um, placement, which I took up with Leinster. Derek Mabry set me up there with Brett Igo and kind of got landed with a load of VHS machines and uh, said, look, um, we've nobody doing this. Brett's with the senior side. We've nobody doing the underage. Can you, can you start taking a look at some VHS tapes, some old database and information and, try and create some profiles for underage players. So, yeah, got got about that. And that was kind of the birth of it, really. And then, you know, Brett took me on a few hours with the senior team, got to meet Matt, Matt Williams, Alan Gaffney, guys like that who were the Leinster coaches at the time. Um, and, yeah, that that's the start of it. And then um, kind of undecided what I wanted to do with my future and an opportunity 
yeah, came up to go to Australia and, and go to Sydney Uni, play a bit of rugby there and study there. Um, had my visa done, had my airline ticket bought, was going with my best mate. He was going with me. And uh, just randomly went to a game in, in Donnybrook when it, on, under some under-15s or under-14s game. I don't know what it was. And bumped into Alan. He said, oh, I thought you were gone, you know. And I said, no, I'm going, going next week. And he said, oh, well, look, I've just taken the Munster job. I'm, I'm advertising for a, a performance analyst. Um, I said, oh, okay, okay. He goes, uh, would you go down for an interview? I said, I will, I will. So I went, uh, next morning I was on a train to Cork, meet Garth Fitzgerald in a pub. Um, a very random pub in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> kind of just done an interview over a bar counter and had a chat and got back in the train that evening and got a phone call off Alan to said, you're, you're moving to Munster if you want to. And so I had to ring my mate and tell him to go off to Australia by himself. So, you know, so Jeez. I suppose call it fate or whatever you want to call it. Um, I went to that game in Donnybrook one o'clock on a, on a Saturday afternoon and on the Monday I had a job working with Munster and all, all my whole life had changed. Jesus, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, you know, I, I actually asked Barry Murphy when I had him on, but I, I'd like to get your, your, your insight into it. Um, you know, for years there, you used to be training in Cork and Limerick. Was the idea of bringing everything to the one location tailored around increased performance or, or what was the thought process around that? Yeah, without doubt. I mean, the 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 management and the logistics of of playing into our training in two centres was 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 nuts. Now it worked. You know, we 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 had a special team back then with special players, special coaches who who performed at the highest level. Um, but you know, for the sustainability of the club, we we always felt we needed to come together at some point. Um, you know, because we we were trying to compare ourselves, and we'd spent a lot of time visiting other clubs overseas and looking at their schedules, looking at, you know, where they were going with their, with their program. And we were really deficient in lots of areas. You know, we were meeting twice a week, once in Limerick, once in Cork to train. We were doing our skills, um, you know, with coaches, co- the court coaches that were coaching in Cork were doing a, doing a um, skill program down there. And then you were trying to replicate that in Limerick and vice versa. So, there was always gaps in the program then there was always inconsistencies in the message um, from, from different coach to different coach. Although we try our best to, to make sure it was aligned. You're always going to get that, um, you know, misalignment at times when you're, when you're not constantly training with each other. So, you know, we were traveling to uh, Mitchellstown, we were traveling to Charleville and places like that, having meetings kind of never in control of the environment, never in control of, of how we manage things. Now it, in a way it really built a bit of a culture as well because that separation to a certain extent created a bit of fun, a bit of rivalry, a bit of crack because you'd meet up and there'd be, it'd be, it was wild at times, you know, you'd meet up in the middle of Mitchellstown and guys hadn't seen each other since the game. And, you know, you could really be outflow of emotion and a bit of, bit of crack amongst each other slagging. And to a certain extent actually built a little, built a quite a lot of team morale and, and spirit amongst us. But, um, you know, really it wasn't sustainable, particularly where, professional sport was going other teams in, in Europe were going we really needed to uh, get ahead of them you know the um the evolution would say of performance analysts so you know when you started off is, is the VHS recorders and used to be transporting between Limerick and Cork um what was the we say the deal that Munster made down the line with we say Apple and CompuB that really brought things forward did it and speed up the whole 
process and, and made, made your job probably more easier that you could have the data there straight away? Yeah, like Compu B were, were a relationship we had for a number of years um, when they started out at Munger College as only a two-man band, really. And, um, you know, they, they were kind of the only Apple, I suppose, fixer around Limerick that I, I could get in contact. So the big thing in, in, in performance analysis and uh, IT, things break and... and you know, budgets weren't big back then. You didn't have time to, you know, wait for a new laptop. You needed to get it repaired pretty quickly. You needed to get maybe a hard drive fixed, maybe a loss of data or whatever. And guys like Kieran and Dennis and there kind of serviced me on that. And, and that was brilliant. That was a relationship we built built for a long time. And then, you know, as, as the Apple product itself, all our software was based on Apple. So we, we, we were reliant on, on Apple products to make things work for us. So, um, you know, as, as, as we grew, they also grew. Um, as a company and, and they evolved across uh, to be a national company as well so you know then they came on board as a sponsor uh, of, the, of the performance analysis department and you know we both got a lot out of that um, and unfortunately that 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 actually partnership has has, has gone gone elsewhere at the moment and um, you know we've, we've all had our challenges through COVID like like they've had so we've had to look at other means and um, but it was a long-lasting relationship uh, very very important one for me because I always had the product I needed at my hand. Um, I always had a phone, uh, somebody at the end of a phone to maybe help fix uh, either a hard drive or a computer on the run, whether no matter where I was in the world. So, you know, you see, you know, it is, um, and obviously this has evolved since since you started out. You see GPS trackers and you know the vests players wear. Um, what's the the risk we say of being too dependent on data? You know. From, from your point of view and from a managerial point of view, you know, there's obviously more things going on, going on outside a player's environment, you know, in, in their outside world that can affect their performance. And I suppose the risk associated being too dependent on, on data. Yeah, it depends on what you view data. Um, you know, I don't, I don't just view data just as a bunch of numbers on a sheet. Um, if you record the right data, you get the right answers and then you can query the right things you want to query so you know when, when we, if me and you have a conversation i say how are you feeling um you know and you tell me your, your thoughts and your views and how you feel and and that's affecting your performance effectively the information you're giving me is data right so um you know we have ways now of actually capturing that data through the sports office companies like kitman labs etc doing wellness scoring so it's not just not just about how you how you rock up to the training or how your numbers you produce in training it's actually all your recovery your nutrition your mental wellness all those different things and when when we leave that just to a player and operate in silos around the data then it's not powerful enough so we try to give easy ways for the, the players to discreetly record that information um, and give that information back to us that's managed at a high level and um, so we actually know how our players are feeling um, and then we can adapt their programs um, or the, the, the athletic performance department can adapt their programs to you know cater their load if they're you know maybe carrying a little bit of a bug because they didn't sleep because their child was up all night etc etc there's many many things going on in everyone's life and uh, you know it's a great saying never judge a man until you walk in that man's shoes and if you live your life a little bit like that you don't just treat the athlete as a, as a, um, I suppose, a, a, you know, just as a part of the squad, and he's like everyone else. They're not like everyone else. Everyone's individual, and you got to cater your mental skills, your rugby skills, and your performance skills to, to for that player. When you're um, 
you know, when you're collecting data, like what type of footage would you be collecting? Would it depend on the type of player, I suppose, and you'd have to edit that footage, etc. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about the evolution of it, um, of performance analysis. Like, obviously, when we first started out, pretty much every individual aspect in the game was coded single-handedly by the analyst um, or a group of analysts within the club. We get a lot of that provided to us by third party now, um, you know, through Stats Perform Opta. Um, you know, there's multiple different companies will provide that. And whoever you align yourself with, you, you, you take that data from. Um, and they're covering all aspects of the game. So where we would spend maybe 20 to 40 hours as a group coding every element, you know, post-game on the, on the individual, a lot of that is done by those companies. Um, we take that in and then we overcode certain elements to match our language or we use a little bit of uh, um, data engineering to, to kind of reword some of the languages that we um, that the third party provide to match our language. So, you know, we've got a pretty substantial um, database built up on all our players and, um, you know, from all the players below the senior level through academy and through um, the All-Ireland League level, you know, we've got ac- access to that very, very quickly, both the data on the player and the, and the footage on the player. Even at the AIL level as well, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of one of those uh, uh, misunderstood things that everybody thinks, uh, for whatever reason, that the AIL is not uh, uh, important. It's 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 pure rubbish. You know, um, we we put a lot of emphasis on the AIL, and um, that's where our players learn their bread and butter. Um, albeit they may be with us training all the time, and that's the nature of professional sport. We're the professional team, so you know, the players are employed by us and they, and they train with us. But, you know, our loyalty to the clubs is absolutely there. And most importantly, all the way down is that, you know, every every All-Ireland League game, particularly in 1A, 1B, and down to 2A, um, and sometimes in 2B, depending on where players are, we, we get all that footage. Every every single week, there's eyes on that footage. Um, so, you know, the academy players that play at club level at under 20s, whatever, you know, there's eyes on them all the time. Um, they self self analyze themselves every week on huddle, um, and you know any players that are outside of the academy or outside of professional thing. If there's somebody of uh, that we need the talent ID or we want to keep an eye on, there's a good kind of connection with all the club coaches to see. You know, give us a bit of feedback in your top three players who's coming through. Who do you think? And then we'll go away and watch us. And you know, if somebody could actually sit in our office, you know, there's a lot of critics out there to say we don't see this, and we don't see that. If, you know, if, if actually somebody came in and sat in our office for a day on a Monday particularly and saw the amount of senior staff, Steve Larkham, Graham Browntree, myself, all guys like that, Elliot Corker down with the academy, uh, Paul O'Brien with, with myself, you know, we watch a lot of AIL games in, in little windows during the week to make sure we, we're on top of our players because, uh, you know, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss something there. We've seen an increase in uh, players now once they hear this podcast, they be... Trying for <laughs> trying to make a, a stance. Um, something I always find interesting as well. You know, during games, you see um the camera which would shoot to the the top management yourself and and the, the coaches. How how do you ensure that there's a good rapport, we say, between that coach and staff to ensure that the message is communicated quickly and to the point in those high pressure environments? It's just about everybody knowing their role, uh, Jamie. You know, I mean, we've all got a responsibility up in that stand. Um, and there's a clear line of communication. Uh, there's clarity in the message. So, you know, Johan will get the Johan will get the message down to the down to the glorified water carriers on the pitch. And um, 
you know, whether it's feedback from me, Steve, um, Wig or JP, you know, there's a very clear line that Johan will send that message on. There's a thought process involved and there's a time uh, management point of view up there as well. So there's a lot going on in the game. Um, we all have our roles within that kind of high pressure situation to, to manage the time and manage the message. Um, you know, certainly from my point of view is to kind of retrospectively look at certain things that we planned, say, during the week from an attack defense point of view um, and kind of keep my head buried in that laptop. So when a play happens and there's a break that I've already got the footage lined up for the coaches to have a, a second look at. And it sometimes are very small windows, so you can't actually review everything. So you've got to be very, very sure and precise in what you're, what you're reviewing is accurate and um, I suppose relevant is the main thing. Um, you know, and there's, and there's no denying the fact up there it will get heated because there's opinion. And sometimes in the middle of a game, you want to make the right decision and there's no harm in being emotional about, about what you're seeing or how you're, how you're seeing the game um, as long as you're staying on task and, and you know, the message that reaches the player is accurate and precise. Like would you like would it be softer on the on the laptops that you'd be able to replay it quickly? Is is that the way it's done, or or what? Like how would the data be caught straight away? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, like every club access to you know four to five six kind of live during a game, and the key thing is um, you know you share that footage out to the coaches, but the two screens you'd have a date you'd have data on one screen and you'd have um, you know video review on another screen, so. Coaches are also managing the footage and we're pushing clips to them so they can manage, say, like one of the more one of the important stages of the game is halftime. So the message wants to be very clear whether you need to adapt um, tactics or you need to uh, rectify, a, you know, maybe something that's not working in the game. So, you know, if it's whether it's Graham Roundtree making sure that he has scrum clips go down at halftime, multiple angle, um, you know, Steve looking at the attack game, et cetera, opportunities. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things going on. It's busy, but by the time it reaches the players, they're in a high performance mindset. It's got to be very, very clear one to three, one to three messages. What challenges has we say Rodan going in, in into Munster that exactly, but in general, has um you know performance analysts or performance analyst departments experienced due to COVID obviously reduced staff would be a big one. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about it. There was there was budget cuts around the place, so we did have to reduce our staff. That was the biggest challenge, and uh, we're trying to rectify that at the moment. Um, I mean, in performance analysis and coaches, etc., everybody wants more, um, but there's there's man hours behind that more, you know. And uh, it's about getting getting um, getting things done and making sure the team is serviced and it doesn't compromise um, how the team is looked after. So, you know when we were reducing staff, we had to reduce certain things, but made sure that that, that certain thing wasn't the biggest compromise to the team. Now that we're building our staff back up again and hoping to get a little bit back to normality, you know, we're trying to look at doing it a little bit more because I think I, I do feel you can always do a little bit more if you've got a vested interest in the outcome. What was it like being around the Munster, um, Munster dress room during, you know, the mid noughties when, when everything was, you know, in the two Heineken Cup, it must have been unbelievable, and the the leaders in the dressing room at the time. Yeah, it was a it was a great time, um, and there's been great times since without 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 success. Uh, you know, it's it's not comparable apart from the trophies, but you know, 
this is a great club with great culture and great people brought up in the same with the same values and um you know it, i think we'll always live within this organization so you know you go back then you you, you know when i started out you had, you had peter clausy just coming to the end of his days claw um Gallup was just finishing up he had a year or two there you know just in, incredible characters raj strings donors you know you know john fogarty back then they don't they done crazy things to make the day fun, but my God, did they did they put a white line and all that fun and cross, when they crossed the line, it was it was performance, you know. And and I think in any organization you have to have that, you know, philosophy where you 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 must not be one hundred percent time, you know, performance and rootlessness. I think you can have your fun, build your team morale, and that creates your culture, but the culture then to performance is you, you cross that white line and where that white line is, whether it's in your office, whether it's in the gym or whether it's in the pitch, once, once you cross that line, it, it's, it's rootless then and it's performance based. And, you know, you know, you need to build up that threshold from a mental point of view that, that when you do cross that white line, there is going to be uh, criticism. There's going to be ex- expectation and, and managing that and making sure you excel at that is where the best teams um make the gains. This is probably going to be a very difficult question. It's, it's you know, something you often hear, especially when you're in your own Limerick, but the Munster way, the Munster culture, you know, what, what makes, say, Munster so special compared to other other provinces or other, other teams? You're going to get a very, you're going to get a very vague answer because, um, do you know what? Lots of different people have asked that question within the organization and outside the organization. And for me, not enough, not in, no one's been really able to pinpoint what it is. Okay. So I, I asked a question and I was asked a question of friends of mine when I went to Munster. And, you know, I asked guys like Paulie and Golov, you know, you know, and I've heard them being asked the question, what, what's the, the X factor? What, you know, what's so special? And said, for me, and I speak to Nile Donovan a lot about this, is that you don't have to talk about it. You don't have to say what it is. You, you, you make it happen in your actions, you know? Um, and that sounds a little bit vague and maybe jumping out of the way of the question. I, I, don't think it, I don't think it is one thing. It's not two things. It's not three things. It's, it's a multitude of the people, the community, the expectation, the values of the club, the want to win, <laughs> the want not to lose. I think it's it's built into Munster, and I, I don't. It's not there to differentiate between the other provinces because, you know, I haven't worked in the other provinces, and I I don't want to undervalue what their what their processes are and what their community is because that's not right and it's not fair. All I can say within Munster and the team that I work with is that the the, the special the spe, I suppose the the X X factor and the specialty about this club is the is the people the community you're representing all those different things and you just don't have to speak about it you just got to make sure it turns into actions when you perform you know wishy-washy way i hope that comes across right <laughs> that's like you carry my answer a question jesus <laughs> <laughs> i'm learning from the best <laughs> um i i suppose another way of kind of putting it out just out of curiosity because you know what you'd have led from new zealand like your doggy holders and the guys um in the north he's and you obviously have the South African lads at the moment. You know, what, what's the biggest shock do they find coming to, to Munster, I suppose, to Limerick, really? 
I suppose you ask most of them, they'll say the weather, the cold. Um, initially, back in the day, they'd say the two centres, you know, that, that confused them mm-hmm. completely. Um, so they're probably the two biggest shocks. Um, I think if I were to pick another third would be the quality of uh, the organisation, the coaching and the people within it. Um, you know, I always find talking to guys like Rua and and Dougie and, and guys like that in the past, Sean, the Villiers, etc. You know, they, they, they probably didn't expect the expectation and how much the club means to the community and, and the province. Um, they always knew Munster and they've heard of Munster, but until you're living here and you're walking the streets and of Limerick and Cork and, you know, all around Waterford, Clare, etc. and Kerry and, you know, you're a monster player, you're known. It's a bit like down in Kerry, when you're a Kerry player, everybody knows you. Um, and there's an expect- expectation that comes with that and there's a responsibility, most importantly, that comes with that. So I think that that probably caught them off guard a lot of time and took them a little bit of time to adapt to that. You're not just joining any other club, you're joining a province, really. Um, so that would be my take on it. I- like what you know, you have, you obviously have spoken to lads about this before, but like, what would be the unique selling point, you know, for them to co- to come to Munster originally? Um, obviously when they come here, all, all that stuff will come into play. But why would they? Have, why would they choose, you know, Munster? Because we're always there and thereabouts, wanting to, you know, achieving to win things. So, um, you know, our ambition is to win trophies every year. You know, we're ruthless in that way, and we're we're hard on ourselves when we don't. Um, we get a lot of slack publicly for it and I, and I get that but we would never ever lower our expectations so we are our biggest critics so one of the probably um, the attractions for, for players who like to you know who won things down the Southern Hemisphere is to come to a club that wants to win things and that every year is there and thereabouts competing um, and won't lower their standards to that um, or below that so I think for me if I were a player I'd want to go to a club that constantly wants to improve, constantly wants to achieve success. Um, and then obviously, you know, players have lots of choices. So, you know, money, money is a big thing in everywhere across the game. So, you know, what we need to do is sell ourselves better um, to get the best players. So that can't be just be something as like, we want to win every year. We've got to meet them. We've got to talk about our rugby program. We've got to, show how we're going to improve them as a player because um, you know any club can say we want to win something and we're going to throw money at it etc that's that doesn't um, necessarily entice the best players um, the best players are sometimes those guys who who have won things but want to invest themselves a little bit deeper in, in, in the club you know help youth um, you know help the community etc so we need to sell the community we need to sell the club and we need to sell our values but also most importantly how we're going to make them a better player while they're here you think the the organization has, I suppose, yeah, has come on in leaps and bounds since locating in Limerick, and I suppose more specifically since um the high performance unit there, which is is out of out of this world. In fairness, yeah, like I wouldn't say it's came leaps and bounds. I think um you know we're we're closer and tighter as as a, as an organization for sure. But you know I I can't say it came leaps and bounds because you know the things that we've done in the past are as good as the things we do now. You know. Mm-hmm it's evolved in how we do things and what we use to do things. But, you know, the organization has always been on a very strong footing, um, you know, from, from all departments. So I I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to compare 
what we do now to what we do 10 years ago and say we're much better now. I don't believe it to be the case. I believe we do things like society does things more efficiently uh, with more tech use of technology, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, I wouldn't like to compare either generations of, of staffing or players, et cetera. I think everybody in this organization, in my eyes, works with the tools they have and the, the, the environment they're in to maximize performance. And that's the bottom line. I know you went to the Golden State Warriors before. Um, what was that experience like? And have you done something similar since? Yeah, well, I haven't done anything similar since as regards visiting. We've done a lot of stuff online with different clubs, as, as everyone else in the world has done. But, you know, I, I went to San Francisco to, to the Sevens and, and, and to run a little event with Stats Perform there um, and do a bit of speaking over there. Um, and with that introduction, I was able to get into a few clubs um, and one of them was Golden State Warriors. So, you know, I, look, I, I didn't spend any time with their head coaches or anything like that with Steve Kerr and like that. But, um, you know, I spent a bit of time with their data, data people. I spent a bit of time with their performance people and their analysts and uh, really got an insight into into what that sport does and how they, how they use different tools that they have at their disposal. Um, you know, Sammy Gelfand was a guy that was employed there. He's been, you know, a long-time analyst with them. I think he's gone to Detroit now. But um, he's kind of like the guy who knows everything that's going on in the club. He's, you know, he was the right-hand man to Steve Kerr when things were needed on the pit, on the, on the course, you know, for half-time, all that sort of stuff from, from an analysis point of view. So I really got into him um, and listened to him and, and, and he, his insight into how the place ran from a... I suppose from a philosophical point of view, cultural and even down to the recruitment, how they recruited the guys, how they recruited veteran players for X amount of games a season at good value to to educate the youth guys to be, you know, championship players. Um, you know, I could talk to you a long time about that, but you know, one of their things was to get two or three vets who who were probably losing their value with other other clubs, but you know, Golden State would see value in them and in keeping them on, on good money play less games but invest their time elsewhere within the club to bring maybe the younger players to be championship players in a year or two time and they felt that was better money spent than you know other ways of recruiting that's actually very interesting yeah the, the, that, that kind of mindset um, so like you you would be in the mind frame that um, you know there is a place for cross sport correlation oh without doubt I mean there's you know, it'd be foolish to think that every like every every team in every sport talks to other clubs in other sports to try and get insight into how they're doing things, whether it's from a meetings point of view and how you're relaying a message to a player, whether it's what you're doing with your GPS, how you're how you're loading, what's your maximum loads, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, we spoke to Paul Devlin, who was an ex uh, um, player here in Munster who went to the Brisbane Broncos for a long time. We spoke to him. You know, just to get a little thing about the league and see, you know, rugby league, see where they're talking to Joe Lewis, a good friend of mine with English rugby. So I spent a bit of time chatting with him. You know, we, we had, um, you know, a lady in who was a storyteller, um, Sarah Murn Murphy, you know, you know, just to get an insight on how she was a professional storyteller, person who taught people how to um, get messages in the corporate world by, by how, they, how they spoke, how they use certain type of text and language and how to use theming to get a message across so you know there was no stone unturned and they're constantly as we're trying to evolve and learn and see best practice around all sorts of different things around performance 
professional storyteller? How is that actually a thing? Is it a full time job as professional storyteller? Yeah. So Claire, what Claire does a lot of the time, obviously works with um, you know, in schools and stuff like that, and does professional storytelling, and a lot of it's about you know posture and body language and projection of voice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and you know to help teachers, but also to help students listen to the key messages and. You know, I, I got speaking to her offline and then actually brought her in for a workshop with the, with the coaches. And she actually speaks to a lot of people who are probably aren't instinctively good communicators. You know, you, you take a scientist, for example, who if you take their stereotypical scientist by, by how you perceive him or him or she to be is that, you know, let's say, uh, you know, glasses, Heading the books, lots of information, but no way of portraying that information to maybe a, a board of investors. So, you know, that's a very cliched way of, of our stereotypical way of looking at a scientist. But her job was maybe to meet that type of person and help them um, maybe portray, you know, how, how they can pitch to a board to, to get funding mm-hmm. for their, for their, you know, the, their findings or their, their project they're working on. And, you know, that's kind of how she was used um, in corporate world um, or maybe even just to help, you know, salespeople and, and how you pitch yourselves to a, to a, to a, grump, a group of clients, etc. So I suppose we got talking and, and, and a lot of it was about body language and, and projection of, of, of your tone. And I suppose when you're, when you're talking to players, you've got maybe very, very small windows to talk to them and you've got a lot of points to get through and, it's about picking those points, but sometimes how you portray those points, the best, some of the best people or coaches that I've, I've dealt with are really, really good, motivated speakers, but very, very short and sharp to their point. And um, a lot of that is actually, you can train that. Um, some of it's instinctive. Some people are like, you take Graham Roundtree, he's, he's, he's an incredible character and, and he's got an incredible way of presenting to players. He doesn't need to tell you a million things. He's, very pointed and very precise in his message and his own, his own unique way of getting that message across. And I think someone like Claire would help maybe the less experienced, maybe somebody who's got a little bit of monotone way of talking about things and, you know, yeah, we got to do this guys. And this is how we're going to do it instead of right. This is how we're going to do it. This is way, this is the way we're going to do it. And I'm by God, I'm going to get your buy-in and how we're doing it. You know, and, not saying that was particularly good by me or anything like that, but I suppose it's just it's just a, it's just a different change of tone. It's how you how you theme it mm-hmm. and how you make sure those points. I mean, one of our key messages was, and I can talk about this all day as well. But uh, one of our key things was like when you were a child, you always remember the best stories that maybe an uncle told you or a father your father told you. You you know you always remember the two or three key learnings from that story, and it's probably how they told it to you and engage you in listening to what the messages were in that story. So why as coaches or performance staff or whatever you may be, a lecturer, you know, why not be really creative and inventive and, you know, be engaged in that story or that message, that 30 minute meeting or that five minute meeting, make sure it's the best meeting that you can give. Yeah, no, definitely. It's kind of down to more communication. So communication skills and, and how she, how she, you know, how people portray the message. Um, just out of curiosity, you know, how has, you know, um, Steve, Steve Larkham and, and Graham Rountree, you know, since they came on board with, with Munster, um, how did they add to the whole, the whole setup? Because I've been speaking to a few guys 
Munster fanatics and they, they want to get a bit of an interest in, in, in insight into this? Yeah, look, there's lots of ways of saying, of answering that question. Like, you're, you're looking at two world-class people, guys who've been there, done it from a playing point of view, from a coach's point of view, and experiences everything in this game. And, and you know, if we've got a very young team and um, those guys have incredible knowledge working in World Cups, Lions Series, winning World Cups. You know, that experience is invaluable. And that they, I'm not just talking about the the mundane or the day-to-day coaching and, and stuff like that. It's it's more about offside, how you can help a guy understand how to become a better player because unless you've worked and experienced failure and you've worked with guys who, you know, doubt themselves, etc. These are guys who've dealt with, dealt with and worked with the best people in the world in all sorts of different dynamics. So just being able to tap into their experience and, and say, well, you know, I, I, obviously I can't go into confidential stuff, but, you know, you see how they talk to certain people who, whose maybe form is dipping. You know, you talk to certain players who, who are at their peak in their, or well, at their peak is the wrong way of describing it, but are performing absolutely incredibly well, but then maybe aren't improving themselves they're, you know, they improve themselves to get to that point, but maybe one of these coaches will say, right, you know what, I don't want to be world-class. Um, and those guys, those guys um, pick that up instinctively. Experience is built with those conversations that they have with players and other coaching staff. And, you know, I tap into that. I, I constantly try to review with the coaches, constantly try to listen to how they and, 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 and view in and how they see the game. And um, I mean, you're constantly learning with people with that experience. That's the beauty. So, you know, I, I personally think in any project in rugby, it takes a few years for, for a project to, be, to bed in to see performance. In that, same, in that same tone, every other team in the world are trying to improve as well. So, you know, you're constantly having to improve. So we lost semi-finals, finals, and you're going, okay, we need to improve by 10% in this area, but that 10% actually could be 20%. You just don't know. So mm-hmm. um, we've taken we've taken a very much a, a line of, you You know, if, you, if you're constantly chasing another team, that team, you could be forever chasing that team if you're only looking at the other team you're chasing. So our, our philosophy is really to improve ourselves consistently better um, in, in many, many different aspects, but I think it's 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 a dream if you're constantly just saying we're you know we we want to be Saracen or we want to be Leinster. Let's see what they're doing. Let's chase them. Well, as you're chasing them, you think you're catching up. They're improving as well. So, you know, you need to be you need to see what other teams are doing as a trend analysis and see where competitions are going. But make sure that what you're doing is constantly constantly improving. Something I, I, I love chatting to players about, um, but obviously when they're still playing, it's, it's kind of quite difficult from to go into. Um, but you probably have seen how this has evolved over the years. Um, you know, you're giving players immediate feedback of, of their performance after games, but they're much more accessible now through social media. Um, and they're probably getting feedback as well on social media. How do you deal with that? That's um conflict really there that players can can um experience because they'll call us beta speed they probably are you know looking at twitter at some stage and and uh getting 
you know you know what goes on there it's, it can be it can be more more often than not it's, it's negative feedback and they're they're seeing that which can obviously affect them how do you like how do you deal with that from from a performance analyst point of view yeah look it's a constant challenge it's something that uh, we all have to deal with um you know when you're like i said a while back when you're vested and you're you're completely invested in the club and you know where the club wants to go and you see criticism, it's it's hard to take sometimes, especially when um you see a lot of stuff that's written out there that's actually false and misinterpreted, etc. That I mean they're the hardest things you see. Certainly people you know or people you you've met in the past write write critical things and uh you know staff and players are no different. Um it's actually interesting when you say that you speak to a lot of players, they say they don't watch it. They they say nah, not bothered with it. But you know, they may say that by fa- in your to your face, but you know, maybe in the background they do watch it. There's obviously training involved there. Rugby Players Ireland help out the players and in, in dealing with a lot of those things, those mental skills around pressure and um, you know, social media influences and all that sort of stuff. So um my own experience would be um you know, really the, the most the most important thing is who you're accountable to and you're accountable and, and you hold your standards to people within this building. Um, and that's all you're judged on at the end of the day is the people within the building who select you and renew your contract. Um, so if you're performing, if you're performing and, and continually improving there and, and being the best version of yourself, well, it, does, it's, it doesn't really matter what outside influence has on that. Um, you know, you're putting yourself in the hands of the people that make the decisions here. So... Um, saying on saying that though, you know, there's lots of values insight that you'll get from social media. And um, from my perspective, you know, you want to listen into what other players from other teams are, are saying about you or about themselves or about their team performance. Because again, that's data for me. That's a little bit of insight that could give you a niche little in, in on on a team and their psyche. So you try to listen to that as well, but you know, everybody has an opinion and, and that's, that's, that's where social media is at these days. Um, you got to get the balance of, uh, you know, cycling through the most important things, take, you know, ignoring the crap that's written or, or said. And, and there is a lot of that, um, particularly when you know, factually, you know, certain things are written and, and it's pure bullshit. So um, you'd love to call them out. <laughs> Trust me, there's many, many, many days I sit in front of social media and I see people that are factually incorrect about things um, and you want to call them up. But, you know, there's, there's a value that we hold here and there's integrity. There's, um, you know, things that we have to uphold as well as, as, uh, as people within the sport. And um, I'll challenge some things, but certain things with, you know, a Munster Rugby employee, an IRFU employee, I have to be um, respectful of that. On the side note, no, we're 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 coming towards the end, but um, you know, I know some of the guys still live in Cork. Like, would they commute to to Limerick on a daily basis or for training, or is that a couple of times a week? No, our program is geared. Um, I suppose probably um, steer towards helping those guys out. Um, you know, people have family in Cork; they're entitled to live wherever they want. The fact is, work is here in Limerick. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I was up in Dublin the weekends. I was stuck in the M50, you know, for an hour and 20 minutes to go about <laughs> 40 miles, 40 kilometers. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, traveling from Cork to Limerick is not that difficult. If a motorway ever comes, it would be less, di- less, di- <laughs> less difficult. But, you know, certainly if there's, if, if there's a big workload on players and they have to be in at certain times or more, we'll cater for them up here as well, staying overnight. So, you know, we might train on a Monday. They'll travel up on a Monday, might stay over Monday night. 
finish early on a Tuesday, Wednesday's a day off, back up Thursday, that type of thing. So, you know, you're not talking about every day of the week or traveling back and forth. That is by far the, not the case. Um, I know the NFL has joined up with you know, Amazon Web Space uh, in effort to improve, you know, players' health and safety around concussion through the use of cloud computing and machine learning and AI. You know, obviously this space is continuously evolving. What's your opinion or, or knowledge in the area of concussion in, in, in rugby? Yeah, it's obviously a very concerning thing. Um, some of the reports that have came out, um, you know, the bottom line is the, 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 the players' welfare and safety is it's always paramount to, um, you know, all performance staff, medical staff, coaching staff. That's, that hasn't wavered. Um, you know, we, we will not put a player in a position of harm. That's just fact. It, it, you know, it's our responsibility on that. Um, you know, there's player responsibility, but I don't think we should put responsibility on the player in game or in training because the player wants to get out there and play. Um, and yes, some of them are conscious of, if you use the, the, the word, some of them are conscious of, you know, um, symptoms of the dangers, etc. Um, and then some, some players are conscious of it, but don't want to, you know, let it influence selection, etc. So, you know, we didn't need, we need to take that decision out of the player's mind and, and make sure it's in our hands and we make the right decision for player welfare. So, um, Saying that, there's lots of protocols we go through, base testing on, uh, you know, certain stimulus and certain things that, you know, I, I'm not, I'm by far not the professional in this, by far not. There's better people will speak in this area from a medical point of view, so I wouldn't even go there. But all I can say is that the right people in the right in the in the departments in this organization have player welfare at mind. Um. On your other point around AI and, and, and particularly VR, you know, we are doing a bit of consultative work with companies who I won't name at the moment, looking at different ways of maybe, maybe um, you know, how to, particularly when a player is coming back from concussion and rather than putting them into that bone-on-bone physical contact, a lot of concussion happens through uh, cognitive awareness and speed and reaction to certain things around them. There's collisions that happen in any sport that are accidental and, you know, things will happen to players from a concussive point of view. But certainly if you can train and, and strengthen the neck muscles, strengthen those muscles around there, the area that stop the head from moving as, as, as dangerous as it can do, um, you know, that's an area of research. Um, another area of research would be, you know, looking at VR to say, okay, can we put a player in a cognitive area coming back from concussion or coming back maybe from an injury so when they arrive into training, their you know their 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 spatial skills are much more alert than what they could be if they just thrown straight into training. Where can we cognitively train them in a VR environment around movement and things that are happening? So when they get onto the pitch, without any you know when they're finished their rehab from a certain injury, that they're actually already pretty sharp around spatial awareness and things that are happening around them. Because a lot of the time, I think I'm repeating myself, but a lot of the time, what happens in a game is, uh, you know, somebody's coming from a different direction and, and things change at a split second that if you can react to that collision coming or happening, well, it's like an F1 driver, you know, being able to react in that minute, sec- minute second to a car maneuvering in front of you, well, their cognitive skills are incredible. So if you, we can practice that area, um, it's going to help the player avoid collisions and has ob- obviously other benefits, benefits in performance around finding space and seeing space. 
it's definitely a very interesting know see how that will evolve down the line um which is it's good it's good to hear that you know stuff like that is happening um what advice do you give to guys if they were ever thinking of going down the route of becoming a performance analyst there's lots and lots of advice the i'll take this in a, in, a, in a couple of parts um so sometimes you just got to get out there and do the hard work in this industry um and i've seen people do and i've seen people really succeed in doing that and and that could be, as as you can see, people are going online now, analyzing games, making a profile for themselves. It can be getting out there, working with your local AIL team. And, you know, budgets aren't big at the, at the, at the base level of this sport um, or any sport. And sometimes you just got to, if you really have a passion for this and you've got to get out there and, you know, invest in a camera, invest in a tripod, invest in a bit of software. Um, that's, that's what you can do at the base level to get into this game. You obviously... You can go now and study, do a master's in performance analysis in, in the UK. You can do it in Carlo IT. You know, there's many, many other courses opening up in this industry. Um, it, it's probably a 20 to 25-year industry, which is very, very young for most industries. So um, every sport is adapting to it and bringing more and more staff on. Um, funding is getting better. But at the bottom line is you're, you're there to serve as a team or there to serve as performance. And um, the only way you can do that is practically get out there and work with people and work on your people's skills with coaches um, find out where you can add value. You know, I'm doing a course in data analytics now. It's not my, it's not my main skill set. It never was. Um, I've, I've tried to learn more and more about it and, and, and do things myself, but you know, I'm just taking on a course now to try and get better at that and make sure that I'm ready um, and my staff are ready from a skill set point of view to make sure what we've implemented works and is sustainable. So and that goes back to being really, really motivated and getting better all the time. Um, what I would advise performance analysis staff um, when they're in the job is don't be afraid to turn everything off. You're, you're looking at me like, what Sweet the tough. hell does he mean there? No, <laughs> things, don't, things don't work. Okay, so... If things don't work from a technology point of view, turn it off, start again. And you know, you're in a high pressure situation in the stand. You know, anything can happen. Rain can affect something, power cuts, etc., like that. So it's just to be calm, it's to, you know, take it all in. How can you start again? And 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 I often see people saying, you know, this isn't working. Why is it not working? They get into panic mode. And I say, right, turn it off, start again. You know, sometimes that's all it takes just to just to control your emotions, control your panic start from scratch because a lot, a lot of times with technology, it's something very simple and just needs to be rebooted, restarted again. So when you were looking at me like that, that's what I meant. Um, because, because <laughs> I do see a lot of performance analysis staff, video analysis staff get into a little panic mode and high performance situation. And it's just to be cool and calm a little bit, bit process driven around how you can fix things quickly, because I can guarantee you things will go wrong. From your experience, um, what are the main qualities that you see in, in those guys that really succeed in the in in rugby? In general, I know every player is obviously different, but the standout qualities. Yeah, yeah, it's it's probably a tricky question. The standout thing that I go back to what I said a while ago. Every they're all incredibly different, but if I go back to you know the the the, the teams like you know Paul O'Connell and guys like that, Ron O'Gara. Donico Callan, they were the best coaches on the pitch. Um, you know, they were effectively coaches on the pitch. And, and the reason why they were that was 
they studied the game, they learned so much about the game, as well as getting their eight, you know, getting their development from an athletic point of view right, getting their um, you know, their rugby skill set right, getting their line out right, all those different things. They went above and beyond that. They made sure they were students of the game. They watched rugby. They understand the game. They they asked questions of people. They challenged people. Um, and I believe the best professional people are those people. Sorry, professional sports people. And, and you know, any 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 of the people that I've read books from in other sports, they are they always had a thirst and a hunger for more information. Um, they always challenged. They challenged why you do things. They challenged how they could do things better. And that's healthy, you know, because you don't you don't want um, people just to you know resting their laurels around how to do things or get complacent. You want people to challenge you. Paul, you, Paul O'Connell used to always challenge me, um, and it was brilliant. It was infuriating at times, and I infuriated him asking questions and stupid questions. But the biggest thing was what's you know what's going to make us better. If you, if you if you narrow it down to that, that's the most important thing. So by him challenging me and me challenging him, I'm just using him as an example, but we're always trying to be better. We were always trying to be better. That was the bottom line. We always tried to improve what we were doing. And the more players and the more staff you have and be, you know, be conscious of people's emotions. You know, you, you don't want to be hammering home at somebody, give me more of this, give me more of that, give me more of that. Because then you're not, you're, t- you're not taking into into accounts their their how they're feeling etc but if you do it the right way and you do it consistently and you and make sure it's efficient and, and and has and serves a purpose well then you're you're improving so you know the best players to answer your question are those guys that act like coaches on the pitch and become coaches on the pitch because they're students of the game they push the standards they maximize their potential you know they've obviously got talent when they get here but you've heard the saying talent gets you so far um you know, and, and, and it's and it's so bloody true that the ruthless player and um, the, the guy who wants to drive standards and drive performance, you know, you, you look at guys like Jordan and we've all seen that documentary and people where he, he gets portrayed as maybe the not not the nicest person, but I guarantee everybody who worked with him, they rose themselves and their standards, you know, how how they performed improves dramatically, you know. So you don't have to like everybody, but I can guarantee you if you're in the, if you're in this to improve and you're in this to, to win things, you, you'll accept that and you, and you'll drive your standard. Is there a good feeling around the camp at the moment? No, George, with the return of, of Zebo. I see a lot of uh, a lot of monster people going to hear about that. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, look, we're we're delighted to have him back. Like Zeb's a monster man, true and true. His his performance on the pitch for Ireland, Monster Lions, etc. He's a world-class player in his day and, and we want to bring that out again. We want him to do it in the Red of Munster in, in, in Cork and Limerick and beyond. And, you know, I know he wants to do that. Um, you know, Steve's a, a great guy. He's a great character. He, he, he loves this club. He wants to perform for this club and he wants to win things for this club. So having somebody with that ambition and somebody with that drive in the change room yeah, you know, it's it's gonna be it's just gonna add 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 more to the to what we're trying to create here. And Zeb is also a great character as a person, um, brings his own vibe to it, brings his own um, crack. And like I said to you at the very beginning, going back to those themes, we always had that. And the more you can have it at and be able to cross the white line and play, um, we want people like that in this in this organization. Last question, though, I always throw this to people, and uh, I've I've gotten unbelievable 
answers, but what would be two non-negotiables, daily non-negotiables uh, for you from a work perspective? You know what? I, didn't, I never thought about this question. Um, yeah, I've caught a lot of people on the hot note with this. <laughs> non-negotiables. Um, from a performance analysis point of view, it's, um, it's accuracy. Um, it's accuracy, and for me, it would also be, um, you know, that that's, I suppose it's not a word that it's accuracy and, and truth. You know what I mean? You got it. When I say truth, what I mean by truth is making the data tell something and, and, and tell the truth in the game. Um, probably not explaining that correctly, but we've got so much information. You've got to make sure that it's accurate and, and it tells a story to the organization and the people within it. Um, you know, that's, that's from my perspective, uh, non-negotiable, it's a hunger to hunger to improve. I mean, that drives everything. I think, um, if you don't have people that are hunger to improve this place, it's, it's, uh, or any organization, it's not going to be a high performance organization. So you have caught me with that. You have caught me definitely with that, but you know, I, 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 could, I could probably think of so many different things that, that are, that are important for people, but. You know, if I go down, if I pick two things, I'd say the accuracy from a performance analysis point of view and the hunger mm-hmm. to improve from a high performance point of view. Perfect. Look, on, uh, on that note, I'll wrap it up there, George. And um, I think we covered a huge amount and look best look with Munster going forward in the, in the season ahead. Thanks, Jamie. Pleasure talking to you. I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, hopefully we're giving you some good insight in what we do here. I hope you all enjoyed the interview with George. I would like to take this opportunity to thank George for coming on Inside View Podcast and best luck with everything going forward. That is all from us on this week's podcast. Please do get in contact with the show if you'd like to contribute in any way possible. You can email us info on the ball team or you can follow us and actually please do follow us on our social media. You'll find us on Instagram at underscore on the ball team building over on Facebook on the ball team building over on Twitter. It's at we are on the ball two. That's a digit two. You'll also find us on LinkedIn on the ball team building and you'll also find us on TikTok on the ball team building. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in next week. We have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on a fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.